Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Simon Cooper for a deep dive in his new book, Inside Barca. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Simon, of course, I mean, being the author of many famous and well-renowned football books, what was the big appeal about writing one on Barcelona? I think it was a combination of two or three things. One is I've been going there on and off for 30 years. And so sort of as an older journalist, you get an experience of time and change that when you're a young journalist, you don't really have. So I'd seen the club change over the years. I'd been present in all the different eras and I had all these notebooks, you know, I've been keeping notebooks of all my interviews for 23 years now. So that was helpful. And then the club, you know, partly because I'd been going there so often, built up relationships. They said they were willing to open doors and arrange interviews for me with lots of people on the inside. Often the people you don't see typically, like psychologists, youth coaches, doctors. And that was very interesting to see how the thing actually worked day to day. And then there was my fascination really with two figures. One is Johan Krauf, the hero of my childhood. I grew up in Holland. But who also I've sort of more and more realized is the father of modern football. He invented the game, which is now played by the best teams today. And he first implemented it at Barca. And then Messi, who, you know, I think two plus years ago when I started writing, we all thought he's an incredible player, but there's not much to say about him as a person. He's not a very interesting figure. And I was interested in, A, how does he do these things that we just regard as magic, you know, dribbling past three people and putting it in the top corner? How, how do you do that? And then, you know, is there something to say about him? And I realized researching the book that, yeah, I mean, he was the most powerful person inside the club. And as someone who spent a large part of your professional career on the ground covering Barcelona, I mean, when I say Barcelona, what and who springs to mind? I mean, what springs to mind is in part that this beautiful city that I'd also been very enchanted by was the reason I kept going back, this city of architecture and climate and sea and food, wine, all very important. And who springs to mind is, is Johan Krauf, who shaped the way that I think about football and also I think the way that probably most football people who grew up in Holland or in Catalonia think about football. So I remember you know, I had similar conversations with both La Porta and Bartomeu, you know, the president and the ex-president, where I said, look, you know, we were just chatting. I said, my vision of football is I grew up in Holland. I grew up loving that kind of football. And that's what I've always wanted. And they both said, yes, exactly the same with me. They said they were born in the 60s. Uh, their first great football memories were Krauf at Barca. And that kind of is the magic that remained with me as it did with them all through. So that was uh, what I thought of. And please take us inside, Simon. You know, what is it actually like to be a football fan in Barcelona? I mean, what's the day-to-day -day like? How do they consume football? Where do they get their information from? And how exactly prominent a role is football within these people's lives? Well, let's talk about the socies, the members. 150,000 people. Um, I think about half of them are also season ticket holders, but you can be a member without being a season ticket holder. And these people often, they come from Barca families, so their parents, maybe their grandparents were socies, they inherited their membership cards sometimes. And so for them, Barca is a big part of their identity of who they are. It's not so much just about loving football. Some of them are not very interested in football, but it's about, you know, being a member of this Catalan speaking club. So very often 
these people are from the Catalan speaking part of Catalonia, which is only about half the population of the region grows up in Catalan, but that's dominant inside the club. Often it's quite middle class, so it's not the way that people in Britain are conditioned to think of football as a working class sport. That's not true at Barcelona, the Socies are a much more middle class operation and they, football is all around them. I mean, for 15, let's say the last 15 years, um, there wasn't much week to week excitement because usually you knew you were going to win. And, you know, you have this incredible team and this incredible player. And so when you went to see Barca Valladolid say it wasn't, oh, I hope we win. It was, of course, we're going to win, but we must play the right football and be Catalans and play the most beautiful football. That was all part of the idea of what the club is, whereas Real Madrid is much more about winning. That's what Real Madrid stands for. And then football is, you know, this is, Catalonia is a state without, sorry, is a region without a state. So there's no... Um, powerful government there is um, it's a provincial town and so very much the identity of Catalonia is most bound up with this football club this sports club and so the attention to it is quite obsessive you have multiple newspapers in both Spanish and Catalan editions uh, writing about it every day, you know, the directors and the players will look every day to see what, is, what are they saying about me, radio programs going on until after midnight, all talking about this one club. I mean, it's like a football ecosystem in which only one club exists. And so um, the attention is... And... You know, that culture you speak about, it actually gives context to how the club is ran behind the curtain, so to speak. It's almost akin to like a global enterprise being run like a local co-op in many ways. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big contradictions within Barca that I found writing this book. So there's 250 million social media followers, you know, vast, vast majority of whom, of course, outside Spain, certainly outside Catalonia. And yet... The 150,000 socies, so, um, you know, there's the ratio of socies to social media followers fewer than one in a thousand, but the socies matter more. And what the president really cares about is not so much the global club, but what do people in my town think of me? What are people in my town saying about me? The, uh, my business partners, my children, uh, my friends from school, the waiter who serves me coffee, do they like me? Is the radio station being nice about me? And so decision-making in the club is driven day-to-day -day much more by the kind of local hysteria than by, uh, okay, we're running, you know, what it, until 2019 was the highest grossing sports club in the world with this global business. That's not how they thought at all. And um, so it was very much day-to-day popularity-driven, certainly not thinking like a business. I don't think anyone I met inside Barcelona, almost anyone, would have described the club as a business. And essentially where the book all begins, Simon, for those that aren't or haven't listened or read it yet, um, as we were saying off camera before the start of this podcast, was back in 1973 with the arrival of Cruyff, you know, against the perfect backdrop of um, the, Franco, the end of the Franco dictatorship in Spain. I mean, it seemed at the time, you know, it was like the perfect storm for Barcelona on and off the pitch. Yeah, I mean, Barcelona had been very much the club of the second city, not very successful and overshadowed by Real Madrid. Even Atletico Madrid was sort of a bigger club than Barcelona. 
1973, when Cruyff arrives, he's the best player in the world. He's coming from the best team in the world, Ajax Amsterdam, won three straight European Cups. He's leaving because they've had a fight. He was voted out of the captaincy. And he's coming to this second tier club in an impoverished dictatorship where they play backward football. And he's really coming for the sun and the money uh, because, because Barca at that time already have all these socies and Northern European clubs don't have any money in those days. And so thanks to the socies, they can offer him a well-beating salary and Ajax's well-beating transfer fee. So it's very much for the money. And he, he doesn't really know where he's landing up. He's never heard of Catalonia, I think, at that point. He thinks he's arriving at what he calls a Spanish city. And so, and then for one, that first year, he and the coach, Linus Michels, who Krauf had known for a decade since they got together at Ajax Amsterdam, uh, they actually produced the best football that Barca had probably played until that point. And they win the league and um, they beat Real Madrid 5-0 at the Bernabeu, which is this huge moment. And this is happening to the backdrop of the collapse of the Franco regime. Franco at this point is old and dying. Everyone knows the change is coming. And Barcelona is thinking of its future. You know, are we going to... Um, are we going to get more powers within Spain? Can we finally start speaking Catalan? Can we express our identity? And if that set the wheels in motion in 1973, fast forward 15 years later, and he certainly began laying the foundations for the present day, with not only you know taking over as first team coach, but also revamping the La Masia Academy at the time, which you know, to my best knowledge, wasn't exactly the best football in school. But, um, I mean, how revelatory or against the norm were these methods and ideas Cruyff proposed at the time when it came to youth development? I mean, both in youth development and playing football on the field, Cruyff was, I mean, it's a cliche, but he really was decades ahead of his time and had been since he and Michels began developing these ideas together from 1965 when Cruyff is 18, I think 17, 18 when Michels becomes coach. And so they had been developing this new kind of football, which went against the norms of the time where you had these two kind of dominant schools of the English game, which was very power-based, um, you know, uh, kick and rush football. And then the Italian Catanaccio. And Krauss says, no, football is a passing game. So the English are wrong. You play it in the other team's halves. So the Italians are wrong. We have our centre-backs on the halfway line. And when we lose the ball, we press immediately and we win it back. And um, we play the whole game within 40 metres and our goalkeeper patrols the entire, our, our half of the field. And of course, when you say it now, you think, yeah, I know that kind of football. That's what Bayern Munich play. That's what Manchester City play. That's what Italy play. And it's become the football of the present. But when Krauf began, when Krauf and Mills developed it in the 60s and 70s, it was like from outer space, you know. There's this famous moment in the Holland-Uruguay match, World Cup 74, when Holland are playing this kind of football. The Uruguayan defender gets the ball and he starts to kind of walk around thinking, okay, I'm going to have a look, see where I might pass. Five Dutchmen storm him. And this guy doesn't know what he's seen before. He's never seen this before. This is just shocking. And that was how new it was in the early 70s. So in 88, it's still very new. And Krauf imposed it at Barcelona and says, this is what we're going to play. We're, we're, we, we have our own style and it's going to be the club style for all the teams from the under eights up. And he also revolutionizes the youth academy. He says, look, the only thing about football is the pass. 
you, you spend your whole childhood studying the past and playing these kind of five against two games. Uh, you could do it seven against four along those little uh, kind of piggy in the middle exercises. And all passing has to be diagonal and you're always planning the next diagonal. So when I pass to you, the, the uh, third man, as Craig called him, already has to be moving to receive your pass. And then I've got to move to receive the third man's pass. So this kind of constant motion. And so players at Barcelona, the kids were raised in that style. That's how Xavi and Iniesta grew up. That's what they tried to teach Messi. Messi wasn't interested, but he did absorb it. And so he became a great player of Croatian football as well as a great individualist. So they were just doing what nobody else was doing. And they also said, look, Craig said, I don't care if a player is small or big. And in fact, small players are probably better at passing because they have to learn how to get rid of the ball before the big guy flattens them. And so he actually discriminated in favor of small players, which nobody else was doing in football at the time. So you have this youth academy based on passing played often by very small players, and it turns out to work. And when they're ahead of their time, they produce the best generation that's ever come out of a youth academy in the history of football, which is Messi plus most of the guys who went on to win the World Cup for Spain in 2010. And it's a period of five to 10 years when all these guys come through around the turn of the century. And they've never done it before and they've never done it since. And I think the reason they can't do it again is because everyone copied them. Everyone, all the leading clubs copied the Masia in, in how to produce youth players. Perhaps the pinnacle of Cruyff's coaching career at Barca with the 1992 Dream Team European Cup win. You know, like it was the perfect blend of homemade players supplemented, complemented by world-renowned superstars at the time. And fast forward all these years later and you look at the influence and the legacy Cruyff had in some of those players that went into management or to work at the highest rooms of football. I'm talking the likes of Eusebio Sacristan, Ronald Koeman, Chicky Bergerstein, Laudrup or perhaps of all the most famous disciple being Pep Guardiola. I mean, what exactly did Pep Guardiola do with Christ's methodology and how did he adapt it at all to make it his own? Well, Cruyff is the original. I mean, he has this new vision of football with movement. And Guardiola is the disciple. So Guardiola is not an original coach like Cruyff, but he's a better coach. He's more rigorous. And he takes Cruyffianism and he gives it rules. So Kraft didn't really have any, didn't plan anything. He'd walk to training and think, and decide on the walk to training what they were going to train that day. Kraft didn't have the patience to watch videos of the opponents and uh, you know find their weak spots. And Guardiola had that discipline, patience, rigor, and he could explain much better to his players than Kraft can. So Guardiola introduced rules like he had the 15 pass rule. We make 15 passes before we launch an attack, and we do that to get a compact, compact block together, moving forward so that if we lose the ball, then all our players are in the right position to win it back. Uh, Guardiola introduced the four-second rule or the five-second rule, depending, where if we lose the ball, we press for four or five seconds to win it back. And if we haven't won it back in those four or five seconds, we either foul or we go back into a, a block. So he and he would... Uh, watch the opponents. I mean, he was as much video analyst as coach and so he watches the coming opponents for two days and says, okay, these guys, their problem is their outside left doesn't have a right foot. So when he gets the ball, we're going to crowd his left foot. He has to pass back on his right. He's going to pass to X and we're going to intercept. 
or when we play Real Madrid, uh, Ronaldo doesn't defend, so every attack we launch over Ronaldo's wing. So these kinds of... Um, Krauf was greater, but Guardiola was better. And Guardiola also had the intelligence to keep updating himself, to keep developing his style of football, which is very hard to do as a coach. So, for example, he goes to Bayern Munich later and he says, OK, our fullbacks, we're not using them enough. Nobody uses their fullbacks enough. So when we have the ball, we're going to push them into central midfield. So he keeps growing and evolving because he understands, as he says, that football is evolution. And Krauf, the evolution comes to an end quite, I think by 92, when they win the Champions League, Krauf has stopped developing. And I'm curious as to the small little bits of detail there in the differences between Krauf and Guardiola. Um, I mean, how do you think Johan Krauf would have adapted, you know, be, if he was to be Guardiola's age in today's genre of, you know, the age of information? Do you certainly think that played a role in kind of Pep Guardiola's evolution as a coach? Yeah, I mean, look, all, all coaches use data now and are very aware of, for example, how many passes in the final third are we completing? And Krauf had left school at 12 and he was very sensitive to his lack of education. And so he said, oh, well, all this stuff is nonsense. All this stuff with laptops, which were coming in in his latter days, and after he retired, it's just people who don't really understand football, so they need laptops to um, reassure them. And so that was a blind spot on his part that I think he would really have struggled to adapt to. I mean, the question is how important is data? You know, you could probably still be a great coach having other people do the data for you and occasionally using insights of theirs. But it definitely is a weak spot, which, you know, Guardiola is a much more educated man than Krauf. Uh, didn't have. And if we were to bring it back to Pep Guardiola, there's one great story in your book about how not everybody uh, took too, too fondly to his methodology. Can you tell us about his uh, mini altercation with a few soccer parents in New York during his sabbatical? Yeah, so he um, he spends a year on sabbatical in the US in 2012-2013. He's exhausted after four years of winning everything at Barcelona. He goes to New York to renew himself, knowing that you have to keep renewing yourself. And his son plays for a soccer club in Manhattan. There's a tournament. Uh, referee hasn't shown up. So the parents are asked, does anyone here know enough soccer to referee this game? So this Hispanic-looking guy in a baseball cap says, I think I can do this. And so he's made referee, and but he keeps interrupting the game. He keeps stopping the game to explain to both teams how they should position themselves. And the, the parents watching, they really don't like this. So they're shouting, let them play. Uh, why are you telling them all this stuff? Uh, who do you think you are? And um, they don't realize that the guy who's explaining to their kids about positioning is the best coach in football. They don't realize this privilege. I, I was told another story. I saw another story after I'd written the book that um, Guardiola is watching his kids' team and at halftime, he goes up to the striker of the opposing team and says to the kid, look, maybe you should do this more. You're doing this, but think about doing that. And gives the kids some positioning advice. And the kid's father runs onto the field and says, who do you think you are to be coaching my kid? And so this is the peril of being Guardiola in a world of soccer moms and dads. 
look, even the best get it wrong sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if we were to focus on, essentially, the book is really split into two parts. You could say you have one part focusing mainly on Cruyff, the other part mainly on Lionel Messi. And obviously, you know, everyone living underneath a rock knows how prominent a figure this man is on a football pitch. But can you tell us a bit more about some of the influence he held off it and how that indeed, in fact, affected the Barcelona strategy? Yeah, so from about 2008, when Messi is just 21, they realised, OK, this kid is going to be the best player in the world. And we have to do everything to keep him on board and happy. And so they reform the whole club into a kind of messy strategy. So every decision has to make Messi happy. And, you know, they've had bad experiences. They've had the world's best player before, Krauf, Maradona, Ronaldinho. It never worked out. You know, the player always left quite early. Ronaldo, the Brazilian, left after one season. And, uh, or, or didn't perform brilliantly at Barcelona. And so with Messi, it's going to be different. So every major tactical decision, every managerial hire, every uh, transfer, they think, you know, what would Messi think? Will Messi like this? And it becomes a way of running the club. And it's difficult initially because Messi doesn't speak. So how do you know what he wants? And so, for example, they buy Ibrahimovic for an enormous amount of money in 2009. And he scores in each of his first five games for Barca. So it's a great purchase. You know, one, maybe the world's best center forward is really working out. And then Guardiola is very sensitive to Messi. Um, notices after a game, Messi's sulking in the bus. And Messi doesn't volunteer anything, but Guardiola sits next to him and says, you know, Leo, what, what's going on? And Messi conveys, look, I cut in from the right and I go into the middle. And when I get to the middle, I don't want this massive great Swede standing in my way, shouting for the ball. And Guardiola understands Ibrahimovic has to go. They've spent this enormous sum on him. But if he's not making Messi happy, he has to go. So Ibrahimovic is benched. And at the end of the season, he's set on loan and he never comes back. Ibrahimovic is furious because nobody explains it to him. Furious with Guardiola. But this is a decision made for Messi. Later, when Guardiola leaves, they appoint uh, Tito Villanova as head coach, partly because Villanova was Messi's favorite coach in the Masia. They appoint uh, uh, Tata Martino as head coach because he's from Rosario, has a good relationship with Messi's family. So everything becomes structured around what would Messi want. And a big breach in the club's relationship is 2018, Messi wants Griezmann from Atletico Madrid. So try and buy Griezmann, and at the last minute, Griezmann says no. And then in 2019, Messi hears that they want Griezmann again. But by this time, Messi's furious with Griezmann because Griezmann has rejected Barcelona. Messi takes that as personal rejection. Messi had given the okay to buy this guy. Griezmann rejected them. Messi just doesn't want to see the guy. He's furious. So he goes to Bartomeu in 2019 and he says, look, you can't buy Griezmann. I heard you want to buy him. You can't. And Bartomeu says, don't worry. We're not going to sign Griezmann. Not realizing, it seems, that his chief executive at this point has already agreed to deal with Atletico to buy Griezmann. So they buy Griezmann 2019 for a very large sum of money. And I think it's 120 million euros for a guy who's 28 at that point. And Messi is just furious. When Griezmann arrives, they sit down together, they try and you know, clear the air and talk, but the relationship never really becomes very good. And of course, on the field, Griezmann is a kind of mini Messi. So 
he wants to be in the places and take the free kicks and have the role that Messi has, but of course it's not Messi, so he can't. So the, the, the signing of Griezmann becomes a disaster. So the club becomes structured around Messi and it's a very difficult balance to pull off. And it goes well for 15 years. We have to give Barca that credit until it doesn't go well anymore. And it's almost, without the context you've just provided, Simon, it's, always, it's almost ludicrous to make the accusation, but were there some people actually relieved within the club that Messi had left during the summer? Yeah, but they would rather he'd left a year earlier. So in 2020, when the Bureau of Facts, the famous Bureau of Facts arrives, in which Messi says, I want to leave the club, I'm hereby renouncing my contract, the uh, Bartomeu's personal assistant gives him the Bureau of Facts. Bartomeu reads it, his face falls. He's in a meeting with five or six Barcelona senior executives at that point. And two of them say to him, let the guy go. Then, you know, by that point, Messi's salary is over 150 million euros a year, which is more than three times the second highest salary in football, probably at that point. Let the guy go. We free up 150 million plus in salary and Manchester City will pay 150 million or so for him. So we get 300 million euros, solves our financial problem. He's 33 already. Let him go. So that's when they should have let him go. But Bartomeu says, I am not going to be the president who loses this guy. So he insists on keeping him. With the result, you know, Messi has another great season, of course, but they finished third last year uh, in a weak team. And then this summer, Messi leaves for nothing. So they don't get that money from that they would have had last year. So, yeah, there were people who at the end were saying, look, the power of the players got out of hand. The salaries going, especially to our older players, got out of hand. And we need to uh, push back. And... Given your understanding and your insight into, you know, the day-to-day -day at Barcelona, how exactly do you, do you think they're planning for a future now post-Messi and under the current financial constraints? Well, they're planning to okay the new stadium complex, the Espai Barça, which is going to cost them like a billion euros, uh, much delayed. It was supposed to open about next year, but it's going to open in a few years. They're going to okay it. Goldman Sachs has become, you know, Messi was the most powerful person in, in Barcelona. And now Goldman Sachs is probably the most powerful entity inside Barcelona because they are, Barcelona have given them the job of, you know, uh, restructuring the debt, uh, continuing to borrow money. And then that gives Goldman automatically a big interest in the closed revenues. And so but Goldman are involved in every business decision the club is making and probably will be for a very long time. So they're going to do this Espai Barça and in the long term they think the revenues from that will be high enough to get them back to the top. But for the next few years, I mean, they might sell off bits of the business, like selling off the commercial rights, so, uh, you know, selling off the rights to raise sponsorship money, the TV rights to some big company and then that company or that person would also have the kind of thrill of describing themselves as part owner of Barca but it's going to be very difficult I mean because it's a member-owned club you can't just bring in an Abramovich or Sheikh figure to kind of be the sugar daddy and finance the club through these difficult times the salary bill has to drop to something like not immediately but over time something like 100 million or 200 million a year which kind of puts you at the bottom half of the Premier League 
And a lot of that money is pledged already to people like Piquet and Busquets for years to come. So you're going to then have to say to them, look, you're going to have to renounce some of your salary claims on the club. Because at the moment, there's no salary space. There's no, you can't bring in uh, anyone even on a free transfer who would earn a significant salary. So that's why they bring in a player of the quality of Luke de Jong, because they, they just don't have a salary budget. And someone like yourself, Simon, who's been fortunate enough to be exposed to some top-class football over the past few decades. I mean, in your own personal opinion, has any club shaped modern-day football as much as FC Barcelona? I think that's right. Nobody has. I think that Barcelona are the most influential club in, in football. And Krauf, that's why I really wanted to write about him. And I was excited at the opportunity because... Nobody really had written about Krauf in English. Krauf is this kind of face that everybody knows, this name that everyone in football recognizes, but that people don't really know much about outside Holland and Catalonia. And he made modern football. So the game you see today, you know, when Italy win the Euro, you're seeing a game that was invented by Johan Krauf in Amsterdam East 50 years ago, and then brought to Barcelona and made great again at Barcelona. And so, you know, Barcelona's problem now is they're competing against themselves. They're competing against better versions of themselves. When Bayern win 3-0 at Barcelona, that is a Kraufian team beating a much less Kraufian team. So Bayern played a game that Barcelona have been trying to play. And before we hit a close now, Simon, if we were to focus on yourself for a moment, I mean, you know, it all began for you as a journalist or as an author years ago with football against the enemy when you were a young football romantic visiting different fair-flung parts of the world, discovering the true essence of football. I mean, if you could take yourself back to the 19, 20-year-old you were then, I mean, what advice would you have for any aspiring journalists, authors, or anyone wishing to enter the football industry? Yeah, I was 22 when I started the book, 23 when I finished. And weirdly, this new book, Barca, is a kind of sequel to Football Against the Enemy, because in Football Against the Enemy, I walk into... Barca for the first time. I'd never been to Spain before. I walked in to the club for the first time, age 22, and asked for an interview with Johan Krauf, and it kind of spirals out of control into finally this book. I, I tell that story. And what advice would I give? I mean, it was totally different. You know, the internet didn't exist. So the, the media market was totally different in 1992, 93. But I would say find your speciality in journalism. Don't be a commodity journalist that they can replace you with someone else. If you're writing, if you want to write about football, don't be one of the, you know, hundreds of people writing the news item, club sacks, coach, coach responds with X, because they can replace you. Anyone can do that. And they can get someone else to do that. And you, you, there's very little money in doing that. So find something that only you can do. And that can be a special knowledge, a language, a... Um, a kind of in-depth understanding of a place or a club. Languages, I think, are very important. You know, football is all built on languages. And uh, if you can say, for example, write about the Premier League, but you speak good French, that's quite rare. But, you know, French is probably the second language of the Premier League. So those, those ways in. But I have to warn people that the, uh, the football media, the independent media, is much smaller than it used to be. Most of the jobs are now probably inside clubs. So um, FC Barcelona has an enormous media operation in many languages. 
So those are sort of journalistic jobs where you get to interview the players, but of course you don't have the independence because you're working for the club. Simon, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on. Um, I mean, you've authored two of my favourite football books of all time, Football Against the Enemy and this great book now on Inside Barcelona. Um, yeah, once more, thanks again for joining me today. Thank you, Colin. It's been a pleasure.